microbiology. What is it and why is it important? Join me, Dr. Sheldon Hurst, for a discussion about this topic on an episode of Brews and Science. I've spent my life studying science with a PhD in molecular microbiology. I'm a scientist by training and an artificial intelligence scientist by trade. Let's explore all aspects of being a scientist, different fields of science, with an emphasis on the world of microbiology. Now sit back, crack a beer, or pour a cup of coffee. This is Brews and Science. So microbiology. I'm sure you all heard it in high school biology class. It's the study of microorganisms. They can be unicellular, multicellular, or even acellular. The key differentiator here is that these things are too small to be seen with the naked eye. They can have nuclei or not where their DNA is stored and can be from a number of different kingdoms, including bacteria, viruses, prions, fungi, and really there's so many others. Now, often we hear how everyone is worried about germs and bacteria, and they use both of these terms synonymously. Well, the reality is that more than 99% of bacteria are non-disease-causing. So, in fact, we depend on bacteria in so many ways to digest food, destroy disease-causing cells, and even give the body much-needed vitamins and minerals. They're even used in making foods like yogurt and cheese and some of our favorites like alcohol and chocolate through industrial fermentation. One of the most important aspects of industrial fermentation that is often overlooked when we talk about bacteria is actually antibiotic production. Now, I know the first antibiotic produced was penicillin, which came from a fungi, but what I want to talk about is more specifically those produced by bacteria and how they're leveraged through massive scale in industrial fermentation. Now, a perfect example of this is actually streptomycin that comes from a bacteria, streptomyces, living in the phyla uh, actinomycin. I'll hold another episode to specifically dive into antibiotics, how they're produced, how they work, and how they're kind of regulated within bacteria. It is one of my favorite topics, and honestly, it's what I got my PhD in. All we need to know is that many antibiotics that exist are actually naturally produced by bacteria. These bacteria are rarely identical to the wild type. So the bacteria that we use in fermentation are often genetically modified so that they can create maximum amounts of antibiotic production. Mutations that we often introduce to make sure or try to coax these bacteria to produce more um, are often through mutagens such as ultraviolet radiation, x-rays, um, or certain other chemicals. These bacteria are often selected and reproduction of the higher yielding strains over many generations can raise yields massively, often 20 times or more in antibiotic production. Another technique that we use to increase the yields is actually through gene ampli amplification. So we can take copies of these gene coding regions for enzymes that are involved in the antibiotic production, and we can insert them back into cells, specifically uh, through plasmids and other vectors. But what we do with these plasmids is they often have gene regulators on them. Uh, we can also put hyperpromoters on them. So these are gene regions that are responsible for making many copies of RNA. And I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds on this, and we'll, we'll spend some other episodes on this. 
But ultimately what that allows us to do is take that gene that has been encoded with an antibiotic producing gene and ultimately regulate it or turn it up as high as we want to produce as much antibiotics as we possibly want or can get out of these industrial fermentation scenarios. So these bacteria that we are scared are going to get us sick are actually useful to us as we exploit them for the antibiotics that they produce. Another example where bacteria have become an absolute mainstay for us is within food. A perfect example of this is cheese. Cheese is essentially a microbial fermentation of milk by selected lactic acid bacteria whose major function is to produce lactic acid from lactose, which in turn causes a certain decrease in the pH of the curd. These bacteria play a role in ripening and developing the flavors within cheese that we taste and, and desire so much. Now, this is accomplished through their metabolic effects, such as acidification of the environment, so, that, that, so ultimately that pH change that we talked about before, also, the breakdown of the proteins within the milk product itself. And lastly, the production of those volatile aroma compounds that we've become so accustomed to recognizing when we smell certain types of cheese. Now, these lactic acid bacteria also aid in the preservation of the food once again by producing natural antimicrobials like we spoke about just a moment ago. Now, it is this complex microbial ecosystem within the cheese and milk product consisting of bacteria, and often in the case of mold-ripened cheese, yeasts and mold, that really creates the cheeses that we desire and, and that we really crave. Another example where bacteria help create food that we all love is yogurt. So yogurt is really just a milk product combined with a lactobacillus type of bacteria. And yogurt's actually really easy to make. Really, all you do is you can take some milk, heat it up to try and kill off some of the other bacteria, kind of unwanted bacteria and yeasts that exist kind of in the environment and in the air around us to kind of kill all of that off. And then you can take some store-bought yogurt that has active cultures in it, often containing a bunch of lactobacillus, and throw it in there after it is cooled down and leave it there overnight. And when you come back, what you'll, what you'll come to find is that that milk was actually, has actually allowed the growth of that bacteria and allowed that process of that, lacto, that lactobacillus to really chomp down on a lot of the milk proteins and the lactose that exists within that milk and kind of create this kind of sour slurry, which is yogurt. I highly recommend, this is kind of one of the things that we do when we're teaching microbiology, is to make yogurt because it's actually really easy. You can make a ton of it with very small amounts of store-bought yogurt. And once you kind of create your own yogurt kind of starter, it's very similar to sourdough, you're able to kind of continually perpetuate and make your own yogurt at home just by heating up yogurt and throwing in some of that active culture yogurt that you had previously. Now, one that this show is kind of centered around is beer, right? Beer, of course, we all know is made by microorganisms. Beer specifically is created from a single-celled yeast microorganism. 
These are often classified with other molds and fungi. Um, they're all part of the kingdom fungi. And really, all, again, all this is, is you're taking a single-celled microorganism, you're throwing it into a slurry that's got all different types of sugars. And these sugars can be things like maltose um, from your malts. And again, it's with time and with temperature, these yeasts chomp down on those sweets. But what they produce instead of an acid is actually alcohol, ethyl alcohol, which is what we all enjoy so much and what this show is really kind of partly centered around. These yeasts are often then reheated and killed off, or sometimes they stay within the beer and will help produce that CO2 as well that gives it that carbonation that we know. Now, there's a lot more that goes into beer making than just throwing in some yeast and kind of that malt that comes with beer. Um, there is really a trade and like an art to it. But really, to create beer or really any alcohol, it's just take something sugary with some yeast that's able to produce CO2 and alcohol as a byproduct, and you have beer or almost any other liquor that we know. And that kind of brings us up to bread. Uh, we all eat sandwiches. We all eat toast. Well, bread is also produced by yet again another microorganism, but that's yeast, very similar uh, very similar to beer. So this yeast is just eating the sugar that is often added to kind of doughs and creates these CO2 bubbles. And really the only difference is, is bread is a solid. That's when that flour has been kind of kneaded over and over again. It produces a gluten protein. That gluten is able to kind of stretch and grow with the CO2 that's produced by the yeast. And this CO2 and, and that stretching often happens in that phase known as proving. So anybody who's ever watched uh, the Great British Baking Show or, you know, really watched any baking shows at all, uh, there's always these long proving steps. And that's where that yeast is really multiplying, eating that sugar and, and kind of just farting out CO2, which is being caught up in that gluten structure in the bread. And then we pop it into the oven. That bread will initially grow which is just kind of the CO2 bubbles expanding within those gluten structures. But also as that temperature rises in the bread, that yeast becomes super hyperactive right until it dies from being too hot. Um, and then out pops bread, which is fluffy. And what you really see are all those little air bubbles produced by microorganisms. Okay, so that was kind of the industrial fermentation and food kind of aspects of bacteria or, or microorganisms in general, uh, especially when talking about yeast. But now we're going to kind of move and segue from the food side and, and the antibiotic production side. Well, we might still make some connections there with the antibiotics because I'm obsessed with antibiotics. But we're going to move from that food fermentation side and, and kind of from that food and industrial world to kind of just talk about some of the general things that bacteria do. Now, one of my favorites and all-time things that I have studied forever is symbiosis. So symbiosis is the relationship between two organisms that benefit from one another. Now, bacteria are world-renowned for symbiotic relationships. Um, we'll talk about symbiosis kind of from our guts 
to nematodes to termites. And I'm really going to try and suck you into symbiosis within the bacteria group and other microorganisms because I've spent so much time in my life studying symbiosis and just really understanding how bacteria can live with us, in us, among us, and kind of that importance. So I'm going to kind of kick this off and, and start with a story. And this is the story of an angel's kiss or glow. So in the spring of 1862, which was a year into the American Civil War, uh, the bullet and bayonet wounds of soldiers were bad enough kind of just on their own, but soldiers of the era were also prone to massive infections. Wounds would often become contaminated by shrapnel or dirt and became warm, moist refuges for bacteria, which could feast on a bullet of damaged tissue and can really cause massive issues and sepsis within soldiers. Now, what soldiers actually ended up noticing after months of marching and eating field rations on the battlefront Many soldiers' immune systems were becoming very weakened, and they weren't able to fight off these infections on their own. Even the army doctors of the time couldn't really do much. Microorganisms, remember at this time, weren't very well understood, and germ theory of disease and antibiotics were still many years away into the future. And this caused or resulted in many soldiers dying from infections, and many of these infections could have been prevented or cured with modern medicine and antibiotics. But what was unique to 1862 when these soldiers had these infections is when they would go to sleep at night, they would actually notice that sometimes their wounds would glow. Now these glowing wounds, soldiers who would actually see a blue light being emitted from their wounds after some time would actually start to heal much faster than soldiers that were not emitting this light from their wounds. So this light then became known as the angel's kiss or the angel's glow. But fast forward kind of into the future when we can introduce science and understand what is actually happening in that glow, what we found out is that there is a bacteria within these wounds known as photorabdis luminescence. And just as the name would suggest, photo in photorabdis means it is a light-producing bacteria. Now, these bacteria kind of rode within the intestines of nematodes, which naturally occur in the soils. And once that nematode kind of touched that human, it would regurgitate photorabdis luminescence. And photorabdis luminescence actually grows at a lower temperature. But since it was within the wounds of the soldiers, meaning right kind of at the surface, the temperature was much cooler. This cooler temperature allowed the bacteria to multiply. And while they multiplied, photorabdis luminescence actually produces a multitude of naturally occurring antibiotics. So... If we recap, what was happening is these soldiers would have wounds that were glowing. That glow was the result of a bacteria, photorabdis luminescence, from multiplying and producing antibiotics at the same time. 
that greatly increased the chances that a soldier was going to survive either a wound from a bullet or a bayonet at that time. And so what a lot of people were saying was due to just a a chance from an angel actually has been found to be done by a bacteria just providing natural antibiotics to help cure any infections or prevent infections within the wound. Now, the reason why I bring this up with symbiosis is because that photorabdis luminescence forms a symbiosis with a nematode where they are both benefited. What happens is a nematode is really just a very small worm. Think of maybe your pinky nail being cut and then cut that in half, and that's about the size of a nematode. Now, photorabdis lives within the gut of this nematode. They form a symbiosis, a very cyclic symbiosis. Now, what happens is that nematode will actively seek out insect larvae. And what happens is that that nematode will find either the mouth or the anus or the spiracles, the, the breathing holes of the insect, and will burrow through any one of those orifices. Once that nematode is within the insect, it will regurgitate that photorabdis, and photorabdis within 24 to 72 hours will multiply, take over that insect, and actually create these toxins that will kill that insect. Now, the symbiosis where they both benefit is then that that bacteria is able to feed off of that insect. But at the same time, they're creating these enzymes that are starting to break down that insect. And then the nematode is able to actually eat on this insect soup, if you will, within that insect as it's kind of being eaten from the inside out. At the same time, that photorabdis again is producing antibiotics. Now, the purpose here is thought that those antibiotics are being created to make kind of a safe haven within the cadaver of the insect, meaning no other bacteria will be able to create or enter this insect and start to leverage the work that the nematode and the photorabdis have, have already done. Now, at some point, that insect will become depleted of nutrients for both the nematode and the bacteria. So the bacteria then have to signal to the nematode that, hey, it's time to rejoin forces. I need to be stored back inside the nematode's gut, and we need to get out of here and find some more food sources. And so one of the ways that it's hypothesized, and, and you know, I've even done a lot of research on this, is through antimicrobial properties or antimicrobial compounds. And In the wild, antimicrobial compounds are actually created usually at a much smaller amount than what we produce in the lab or kind of in a petri dish. And so we believe that there is a small amount of antibiotic that's being secreted by photorabdis, a very specific one that the nematode is able to recognize that says, okay, I'm going to now start to eat these bacteria. I'm going to hold them within my gut. And that signal also will cause the nematodes to exit the insect's body. Once that insect's body is near kind of a moist or or wet environment, you can actually watch these multiplied nematodes 
exiting and going and starting that cycle all over again, looking for another insect. So this is actually an amazing kind of symbiosis. It's, it's, a, it's a single organism forming a symbiosis within another organism. So there are no other bacteria that actually live within the gut of the nematode, which is actually really astounding because if you think about it, our guts have tens of millions and, and, and thousands of different types of species just within our own gut. But within this nematode, it is a monoculture. It is a single species of bacteria within that nematode. And this is, you know, really what got me excited about studying bacteria. I know it's kind of weird, but the reality is here you have this kind of insect killing machine. And then you also have this bacteria that was able to save the lives of all these soldiers kind of back in the Civil War. And it's something that can just really invigorate you um, when you think about microbiology. And it's a new perspective on microbiology that I think a lot of people don't really have such perspective on. So I'm sharing it here with you. Now let's talk a little bit more about ourselves. So we have these things called microbiomes, and these are different areas of our bodies where bacteria live. So you have a skin microbiome, you have a gut microbiome, uh, you can have, I mean, microbiomes can be under your fingernail, they can be on your nose, up your nose, uh, in your mouth, on your teeth. A microbiome can be anything as broad as your skin to as specific as like a tooth microbiome. And one of the first interactions we have is our skin microbiome. So this is the bacteria that lives on our skin. Yes, I realize this may be news to some people, but we have trillions of bacteria that live on our skin. And again, 99% of bacteria are non-disease causing. So these are bacteria that actually can outcompete some of the bad bacteria. But also some of these bacteria, if they're in the wrong microbiomes, can cause significant problems. So an example of that is like E. coli. E. coli lives in our gut microbiome. In our gut, it's happy. It's exactly where it's supposed to be. Um, we'll talk about that and, and how it aids in digestion. But if you put that in your eye, well, you're going to get pink eye. If you kind of ingest it into your mouth, you're going to get kind of most likely going to get some type of food poisoning. You'll probably get ill. Um, it lives happily within our guts. Now, microbiomes are generally a representation of things that we interact with. So our skin microbiome, if we are around other humans, they tend to have many types of staph on them. So that's where you'll hear staph infections. When you get a puncture wound, you might get a staph inf infection. Well, that is bacteria from your skin microbiome penetrating somewhere it is not supposed to be. So you can get a staph infection. Now, another interesting fact is that since our microbiomes generally represent things that we come in contact with, people who have pets, uh, their skin microbiomes often match our pets. And so it can become very easy when we kind of do almost like a microbiome study. Uh, if you were to study the microbiome between your pet and uh, somebody else, you would actually be able to tell that they weren't related, that that wasn't your pet. But if you look at the microbiome of your specific pet with your skin microbiome, then you'll find and you'll be able to identify 
it's almost like a fingerprint. You guys are a match because you have similar skin microbiomes. Now, another area, like I alluded to, is indigestion in our guts. The microbes in our guts are quite diverse, right? There are more than a thousand different species of bacteria living in our gut alone. Only 150 to 170 of these species have significant populations, but you do have upwards of a thousand or more different species of bacteria within your gut. What's interesting is that many of the foods that we consume can actually shape the proportions and compositions of our gut microbiomes. A growing plant produces a range of antimicrobial compounds to defend itself when these plant foods are cooked, and these compounds are largely inactivated. But when these plant foods are eaten raw, some of these antimicrobial compounds act against the microbes in your gut. And some microbes are more susceptible than others. This is fascinating because this can cause rapid fluctuations of proportional compositions of the species in your gut. And we know that very different microbes thrive either in high-fat versus low-fat or plant-based versus animal-based diets. There was a study that showed that keeping the most varied diet can actually help someone lose weight. And the reasoning for this is that your gut microbiome will never have the chance to adapt to a specific type of diet and become efficient at extracting nutrients from that diet. So therefore, many nutrients will just pass through if it has never been able to learn that specific diet. You'll feel full, but you won't be able to absorb as many nutrients as you won't have bacteria that have become specialized in that specific diet. The hypothesis is you will likely not gain a lot of weight. So think of it like this. If you have a gut microbiome kind of morphed by constant fast food, so think of a high-fat, high-starch diet. Well, if that's all you've eaten over the years, you will find that the gut microbiome is represented largely by bacteria that are able to consume high-fats, kind of carby, starchy diets. And so when you consume that high-fat, carby, starchy food, that bacteria can very quickly break it down, extract as many nutrients as possible. And this sounds like a good thing, except when you consume too much of that kind of high-fat diet, and then you'll gain all of those nutrients your body won't be able to leverage all of those nutrients unless you're, I don't know, a Tour de France cyclist. You will gain weight. You will store those nutrients in adipose tissue. Now, on the converse, if you were to, say, eat McDonald's on one day and maybe some plant-based foods on another day and maybe some high dairy foods on a different day and you keep just rotating again maybe back to some raw vegetable diet you will become very it will become very difficult for your gut microbiome to adapt to that that specific nutrient intake so that 90% bacteria that was focused on that high-fat diet and you had that 10% that was like, oh, we see plants every once in a while and we're here to help break that down. Well, you'll start to see a much more proportionally diverse group of bacteria in your gut. And so 
maybe now you have 33% are your kind of high fats, 33% are your raw foods or raw plants, 33% are like your dairies. And what will happen is then when you start eating a lot of high fat kind of fast food diets, your body isn't as efficient as breaking them down. So therefore, you will not be able to leverage the nutrients from that. And the only way to keep this from happening where you can get a concentrated amount of nutrients from food is by constantly varying your diet. And there is, there's been a multitude of studies, but one of the original studies came out of a Chinese lab where they were actually able to superimpose gut microbiomes across different people that had maybe a high-fat diet to start. And they would take this diverse microbiome and they would put it into a high-fat diet person. And they were able to show that, yes, this can be true as long as that high-fat diet person was able to kind of maintain a varied diet. And at the end of that, was able to show that the bacteria favored that varied diet. And they also had control groups that they would put this, this varied microbiome in, and then they would let them just continue on their high-fat diet. And what you would see is a gradual change back to that, that high-fat diet microbiome. And it would then take over, and ultimately the person would go on to gain all that weight again and lose that variation within their gut microbiome. All right, so that's kind of microbiome symbiosis and, and really kind of how we live among bacteria. But another very important role of bacteria is that they act as molecular vehicles to transfer DNA to complex organisms such as plants and animals. Now, bacteria are able to do this via cloning. And when people hear cloning, they generally jump to thinking making copies of people or animals. Maybe the image of Dolly the sheep that was the first cloned mammal jumps into their mind. This is known as organism cloning. But what bacteria are useful for is molecular cloning. Now, molecular cloning is significantly less dramatic. It is merely just moving pieces of DNA around or copying DNA and putting it somewhere else where it wasn't originally found. And we aren't talking huge genomes. We're talking about bacteria genomes, which are just a couple million base pairs long. Really not that large. Though, as shown possible by the Craig Venter Institute, uh, you can actually create fully synthetic genomes within bacteria. This can be from a couple base pairs to thousands of base pairs, and anything more than that takes some more advanced techniques. Now, cloning of any DNA fragment essentially involves four steps. These four steps are what we leverage in bacteria to transfer DNA to other organisms. These four steps are fragmentation, which is just the breaking apart a strand of DNA. And we can do this through either physical forces or through chemical forces using things called restriction enzymes, which allow us to do a targeted break within DNA. Once we have that DNA broken, then we go through ligation. Ligation is just a fancy way of saying gluing together pieces of DNA 
in a desired sequence. So we can take those broken fragments of DNA and we can attach them to other pieces of DNA using some enzymes to ligate or ligase. The third step is transfection. So that's inserting that newly formed piece of DNA into cells. And we can deliver it just as double-stranded DNA, as DNA within a virus, or on plasma DNA, which is just a small circular piece of DNA found in bacterium. And then the last or the fourth step is screening or selection for that specific piece of DNA that we are interested in. And we can generally do selection based off of antibiotic resistance. So for example, if we're using a plasmid as our vector to move a foreign piece of DNA into bacteria, we generally include an antibiotic resistance gene with that new piece of DNA included on it. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to identify the bacteria that actually gained that plasmid with that new piece of DNA on it. Because what we can do, let's say we have a penicillin-resistant antibiotic gene, and right next to that is our new gene. Well, once you put that into that bacteria and you grow it on a penicillin uh, antibiotic Petri dish, the only bacteria that will grow are those that contain that antibiotic-resistant gene for penicillin. And we know that right next to that penicillin gene is our new gene of interest. And therefore, we are able to know that we were successfully able to transfect that bacteria with new DNA. Now, this becomes very important because what we're able to do is take genes from one organism, let's say a human being, and we are able to copy that gene and we can put it into bacteria. You might ask, well, what gene would we want to do that with? Well, think about insulin. We are actually able to artificially produce insulin in bacteria by copying genes from the human genome inserting them into a plasmid, and then putting them into a bacteria like E. coli. And what we're able to do is we're able to, just like that antibiotic production that we spoke about earlier, we're able to rev up the production of insulin in that bacteria or E. coli, and we're able to harvest it from the byproducts of that bacteria. And now we have insulin that we are able to give to diabetics. So this is where it becomes very clear that genetically modifying organisms have huge benefits, especially when we think about insulin production or antibiotic production. Using these same techniques, we can also infect plants and animals and even other bacteria with new pieces of DNA. And why we want to do this is it allows us to identify ways that we can protect plants from specifics. Some of the reasons we might want to do this is it allows us to protect plants from either other bacterial infections, some pests, or other animals that want to eat it. We can also introduce it into animals. This can be important for maybe gene therapy. Maybe we're able to identify a single cancer gene 
and introduce a vector that is able to replace or knock out that cancer-causing gene within the genome. And we might put it into other bacteria, attenuate some type of a negative outcome or to ward off a toxin. And that could be important because we might not be able we might be able to knock out a malice gene and then introduce that bacteria kind of back into the wild and it will outcompete bacteria that have the nefarious gene which could then protect either humans or other animals. One example of this is a bacteria that lives within the teeth. Uh, there was a there was a study recently done where the scientists were able to take the bacteria that grow naturally on the teeth that produce an acid which ultimately cause cavities and replace that acid producing gene with an alcohol producing gene and then they reintroduced it back into people's mouths and what they found is that alcohol producing bacteria would outcompete that acid producing bacteria in the end, resulting in fewer cavities. Well, that pretty much covers kind of the intro to what microbiology is, how it affects our lives, and all the different facets that we interact with microbiology. I'd like to, t I'd like to take the time now to thank you for listening to the first episode of Brews and Science. If you have suggestions for new topics, please leave them in the comments. Don't forget to review and subscribe if you like what you hear. And next week, stay tuned when we talk about quorum sensing or the way that bacteria actually communicate with one another. We'll go into a much deeper dive than this kind of surface level discussion that we had today. Again, I'd like to thank you and please subscribe and review Brews and Science.